And if you would open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, if you aren't all there already. Um, last week, if you weren't here, uh, I walked us through the Lamb opening the seven seals of God's scroll. He held in his right hand, gave to the Lamb, and it's God's scroll, his plan for the fullness of time, and walked us through what those seals were. And seal six was a preview of that great day of God's judgment. It is a day that's awful. And for those who are here on the planet, when that happens, it's horrific. What you see in that passage at the end of Revelation chapter 6, you see people hiding and calling out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to crush them so that they wouldn't have to face the presence of God. Well, what you see there is people in crisis. And I don't know what happens in your heart when you hear that, whether it's this morning or last week, but even just reading of the sixth seal and of the coming day of God's wrath, it can put you in crisis. Maybe you came into the building this morning, you've got some kind of identity crisis. You don't know who you belong to. You don't know what defines you. Revelation chapter 7 is going to help with that. Maybe you came into the building this morning and you have a hope crisis. You, you hear about the sixth seal and the coming day of God's wrath, and it makes you hopeless. Maybe you're just hopeless today. Revelation 7 will put hope in your heart. Or maybe it's a different kind of crisis altogether. You, you, you hear about the coming day of God's wrath, and your crisis is one of caring. You care about your finances, you care about your health, you care about your hair, but you don't care about that great day of God's wrath, whether it's for yourself or those around you. Revelation 7 is going to make you care. And then there's another kind of crisis that can come out of the sixth seal. It's a crisis of praise. Maybe this morning your heart is more like this parched parcel of praiselessness. You're kind of like, hey, the singing's great, but let's get to the preaching. I can skip the praising. Revelation 7 is going to make you want to sing with the church. Salvation belongs to our God. And then for us Christians in the room, there's another crisis that the sixth seal can, can bring to our attention. It can make us realize how witness-phobic we are. We don't want to talk about Jesus because, quote-unquote, we don't want to rock the boat. And that's just a nice way of flattering ourselves what it really is, means is we're afraid. We're afraid to talk about Jesus to others 
because we don't want to be poorly thought of. We don't want to burn bridges. We don't want to strain relationships. We don't want to be that fanatic or freak show in the office. What Revelation 7 does is it helps a witness-phobe become witness-faithful. We've got something to say. Revelation 7 is for us to assure us, to hope us, to sober us, to inspire us, and to encourage us. Last week when I walked you through the seven seals, we looked at the four horsemen, the first four seals. We looked at the martyrs under the altar, fifth seal, singing, How long, O Lord? We looked at the sixth seal, the, the preview of that great day of God's wrath. And then we skipped chapter 7 in order to get to chapter 8 and the opening of the seventh seal, which was this calm before the storm, literally a, a, a kind of silence of the Lamb in a whole different sense. What you need to understand is that chapter 7 is response to a question asked at the end of chapter 6. If you would look in Revelation chapter 6, 17, those on the earth on the day of God's wrath, they say, for, for the great day of their wrath has come. And then they ask, and who can stand? Chapter 7 answers the question, who can stand on that great day of God's wrath. And the way that chapter 7 answers the question of who can stand is by giving us two different pictures. And I'm going to argue this morning that they're complementary pictures. They're two different pictures of the same group of people. The church. The blood-bought of the Lamb. These two complementary pictures of the church answer the question in 617, who can stand in the midst of tribulation? Who can stand on that great day of God's wrath? And here's what you're going to see. This picture one, only those who are sealed with the name of the Lamb will stand on that day. And vision two, picture two, only those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb will stand on that day. They're two complementary pictures of one group of people standing before the throne. So, Hannah, thank you so much for reading Revelation 7. Let's begin looking at this first picture of the 144,000. Those who've been sealed with the seal of God. There's three things I want you to see. There are, is this word seal shows up a number of times. I want to touch on the 144,000 and I want to help you see something in the list of those 12, 12,000 tribes. Okay? So, this seal business... What's important to notice is that that word seal shows up in these eight verses six times. 
And when it comes to our Bibles, that's a concentration, that's dense, that's repetition, that's emphatic. We need to be paying attention to that. What we see happening in verse 1 is that there are these seven or four angels sent to the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. Likely, those are the four winds that's a parallel with the four horsemen. It's a holding back of of tribulation, of judgment. And in verse 2, there's another angel that comes out of the east, and that angel is holding in his hand the seal of the living God. And in verse 3, that angel with the seal tells those four angels holding back the judgments to say, hold on until we have sealed the 144,000. We've sealed them on their foreheads. So what is a seal? We're not talking about a marine animal, of course. What we're talking about is the marking of a signet ring of a king, where this signet ring would be pressed into hot wax on a document, authenticating that document is legit and belongs to the one who sealed it. In fact, in the first century, slaves were oftentimes had a seal literally placed on their forehead to indicate who owned them. These seals are connected to authentic ownership, belonging to someone. So if you came in with a crisis of identity, oh, there's good news here. Whoever these 144,000 are, they are being sealed with the seal of the living God. We see that in verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. These 144,000 belong to God. They are the legitimate servants of the living God. So the question begins, is this a literal 144,000 people? There are different people in this room who would hold different positions on it. Some people think that this 144,000 is a a literal number of ethnic Jews. I personally do not believe that. I don't think the 144,000 is to be taken literally, nor do I think it is is a reference to ethnic Jews. And the reason being is the way that numbers get used in the book of Revelation. They are more representative and symbolic. They they are designed to get you thinking about something. So, let's just think about that number 144,000. Right away, you know that it's a factor of 12, right? What do you associate the number of 12 with? For me, growing up, 70s and 80s, I associated the number 12 with two quarterbacks. There was the number 12 on the black evil jersey of Terry Bradshaw and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then there was the number 12 on the white good jersey of Roger Staubach in the Dallas Cowboys. So when I hear the number 12, I think of quarterbacks in football. That's how I associate it. But if you have a Jewish background, or you're familiar with a Jewish background, the number 12 
is associated with God's covenant people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And when you have 12 times 12, it is a symbol of fullness and completion. We've seen 12 and 12 stacked before. The 24 elders around the throne representing all of the saved humanity. And when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, you're going to see another stacking of 12 and 12. It is the 12 gates around the new Jerusalem and the name of the 12 tribes of Israel on each gate. And then you have the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem named with the apostles, God's Old Testament and New Testament people, the church. And of course, the New Jerusalem's gates are open to the nations coming who bear the mark of the Lamb. That 144,000 is packed with meaning. And what I want to help you remember is this. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob, they come from Isaac. Isaac comes from Abraham. And it was to Abraham God promised in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22 that, that he would bless all the nations of the world. All the nations would come to worship the one true living God through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So when I come across this 144,000, based on my understanding of the scriptures, this is, this is more symbolic of God's new covenant people, the church. Maybe another example would be helpful. How these numbers get used. Do you remember in Matthew 18? Jesus' disciples come up to him, hey, how many times should we forgive someone who sins against us? Seven times. And then Jesus is like, how about 70 times seven? If you take that literally... You got 490 shots. So if someone sins against you for the 489th time, you got to say something like this to them. Buddy, you got one more. And then we're done. If you take it literally. But that's not what that means. 70 times 7 is a full and complete number. It's however many times that you need. You just keep on forgiving. The 144,000 number it's a squaring of 12. It's a complete full number. And when you get it multiplied by 10, it means, in the Hebrew mind, big. So 12 times 12 times 10, big. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10, bigger. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, 144,000, huge number. I believe that these 144,000 is actually a way that John is describing God's new covenant people, the church. Now, I want now to point you to the listing of the tribes in order to try to convince you even more. If you look at the listing of the tribes starting in verse 5 and through 8, you'll notice that there's 12 tribes, all 12,000, right? 12 times 12, fullness. The gold standard of the listing of the tribes is Genesis chapter 35. 
that's where the tribes of Israel were listed out for the first time in full. It's the gold standard. But what happens here, John seems to do some editing. He's moving some things around from that original list in Genesis 35. So that should make you wonder why. Because when you have someone who makes an adjustment like that, does an alteration like that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's purposed. He's trying to communicate something. And what you have in this list is that there are two tribes missing from the Genesis 35 list. Those two tribes are Dan and Ephraim. And the reason why they're missing is most likely because they become associated with idolatry. And so what's being said here is that God's true people, the number he knows, there are no beast worshipers in that. And then you have another kind of kind of flipping of placement. If you notice, you have Gad, Asher, and Ephtali. They are the um, third, fourth, and fifth. In, in the Genesis 35, they're at the end of the list. And they're at the end of the list in Genesis 35 because these are the boys born of Jacob's concubines. They were kind of on the outside. And what John is doing here is he's saying, hey, those on the outside are now taking a place of prominence among God's people. He's getting at something. But the piece de la resistance, the most compelling piece of this is the first tribe named. In Genesis chapter 35, it's the firstborn of Jacob, who was Reuben. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 5, the first tribe is the tribe of Judah. Do you know who comes from the tribe of Judah? The Lion of Judah. Jesus. This is a new firstborn of God's new people. The church. Whether you buy what I'm saying, we can talk about it at another point. But what my argument is, and I'm going I'm to try to make an even better case in a minute, that this 144,000 sealed, it's a picture of the church standing. Now, a question we can ask is, hey, a seal is this mark that authenticates. Do we know what this seal is? And in fact, we do. If you flipped in your Bible to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, we have another reference to the 144,000, another reference to foreheads, and there is a writing on the foreheads of these 144,000. Do you know what it is? With him, 144,000 who had his name, the name of the Lamb, and his father written on their foreheads. This sealing happening in Revelation chapter 7 is the sealing, the placing, the writing of the name of the Lamb and His Father on this 144,000. They belong to the Lamb. They belong to the Father. Has anybody seen those property of t-shirts 
property of The Ohio State University. You ever see something like that? Well, this seal is functioning as property of the Lamb. That's what this means. You belong to the Lamb. You belong to the God. The God of the Bible. And you notice that it's sealed on the forehead. Is this a literal tattoo? I would say probably not, and here's why. That word name, it gets used in a different way throughout the Bible. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower to which we run and are safe. Now, the picture there isn't this kind of brick Yahweh in the middle of the backyard to which you run to and are protected and are sheltered. The word name is another way of talking about God's character, who he is. We run to our God and are safe, his name. And when we are sealed with the name of the Lamb and his Father, what that means is we take on the very character of the one whose name we bear. We become like him so that all can see it's a prominent like a forehead. This seal authenticates who you belong to. If you bear the name of the lamb, you will be like the lamb in who you are and how you live. This seal is the seal of the living God. It's a living seal. We, we learn from Ephesians 1 and 4 that it's the Holy Spirit who seals every Christian for the day of redemption. So here's how to think about this. It's the Holy Spirit who is sealing us with the name of, of the Lamb and His Father. And that sealing gives us an enlivening strength to persevere in the face of pressure. Do you remember that this whole scene starts with the four angels holding back four winds? Tribulation, hardship is coming. The sealing takes place in order to say you're going to come through because the living God is with you. You're sealed, empowered to live. This 144,000, sealed by, with the name of the Lamb, this is, this is God's people who stand on that great day of God's wrath. Now, I could make some more arguments, but I'm going to hold off. Let me just answer this question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter who the 144,000 are? Well, here's why it's matter. It's because those 144,000 are the ones who will be able to stand on that day. And the argument I want to try to convince you of is that you're part of that number. When you read the 144,000, you're numbered among them, Christian, if you've been sealed with the seal of the living God. If the Holy Spirit has come upon you and marked you as property of the Lamb, you're part of this number. Maybe the question you're asking right now is, was how, how do I know if I've been sealed? How do I know? Well, here's how you know. 
either Jesus is becoming more and more prominent as the center of your life, or he's not. That's how you know. That's how you know if you're living for the Lamb, if you've been sealed. And it matters because this seal prepares us for the pressures of the tribulation to come. The Holy Spirit is in you, making you like the one whose name is on you, enabling you to remain faithful to him when the winds start blowing against you. That's the whole point. So do you belong to God or not? Have you been sealed with his seal or not? If you have, you're numbered among his people. You belong to God. You're going to come through hardship. But if you haven't, if the Spirit of God hasn't borne witness to your spirit that you're a child of God, if you haven't, here's the question. Do you want to be? Do you want to be numbered among God's people? And if you do, you just need to cry out to the Lamb. Cry out to the Lamb saying something like, Oh God, would you... Seal me with the name of the Lamb and His Father. Make me yours. That's how you respond. This is the first picture. The 144,000 who've been sealed with the seal of the living God. And what you need to notice is that John heard it. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed. He heard this. And now as we move to the next picture of the church, those who can stand, what you're going to see now, what you will now see is a multitude washed by the blood of the Lamb. So now let's look at 7, 9 through 17. And the question you just need to start asking yourself is this. Do you see yourself in this multitude? Do you see yourself there? Now, there are a few differences between the first scene and the second scene. The first scene with 144,000 and the second scene with the great multitude. The first scene takes place on earth. The second scene takes place in heaven around the throne. The first scene is entering into tribulation. The second scene is coming out of tribulation. The first scene has a definitive number. The second scene has an innumerable amount of people. So the question becomes, how are these very different pictures the same people? How can this be the church? They seem like very different people. Well, we've got a major key. You want to see something fun? Do you remember in Revelation chapter 5, the one sitting on the throne holds up this seal and this mighty, this scroll and this mighty angel cries out, who can open the throne? Who can open the scroll? Who has the authority to open the seals? And no one answered. John starts crying because no one is able to open the scroll. And then an elder comes. And John hears him say this. 
the line of Judah, the root of David. He is conquered. He can open the scroll. He can do it. There's a question, who can answer the scroll? John hears someone. The elders say, the line of Judah, the root of David. And then in verse 6, John sees. And what does he see? A lamb standing who had been slain. There's a question, there's a hearing, and then there's a seeing of someone standing. Here's what we have in chapter 7. 617, there's a question, who can, who can stand? Chapter 7, the first picture, John hears, and he hears about a particular people. And we're expecting that we're going to see those people. But what John sees, starting in verse 9, is not 144,000 ethnic Jews. He sees a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing. What we have here is an interpretive key. These aren't two different groups of people. These are the same people. One group, two complementary pictures. And here's what I want you to help you to see now. Look what John sees. Verse 9, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. A great multitude. This is a lot different than, like, the specific number of 144. This is a great multitude that no one can number. Numbered to innumerable. Surprise! It should make you think of Genesis 22 where all those who are blessed by the line of Abraham, they're, gonna, they're more than the stars of the heavens. They're, they're, they're more than the sands of the seashore. They're innumerable. A great multitude. This is an innumerable multitude. And then we see next, it's a diverse multitude. It starts by saying, from every nation. From every nation. Not just one nation. Every nation of the world, every nation, this multitude has in it all tribes, all peoples, all languages. It's not monoculture multitude, it's multiculture multitude from all over the world. Do you know what this means? The gospel's gone out to all the world, which means there have been faithful brothers and sisters witnessing to Christ throughout all the world. It gives strength if you're witness-phobic. This populating of the, of the heavens around the throne. These are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
It's a diverse multitude. And we want a little taste of that in our church. We believe we've been placed in a very multicultural, ethnically diverse, socioeconomically diverse city. And we want to represent it among us. We want a little slice of Revelation 7 happening here Sunday after Sunday, worshiping the Lamb. But not just a diverse multitude. This is a standing multitude. Did you see that? A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Verse 17 of chapter 6. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? I saw a great multitude. No one can number. Every nation, all tribes, people's languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Questions being answered definitively. It's in contrast with seal six. People who are hiding from the presence of the one sitting on the throne. Here we have a multitude gathered around the throne, not hiding, standing. No fear. No fear. Confident. Standing before the throne. They're a standing multitude. And they're a white-robed multitude. They have white robes on. We're going to learn in just a minute where these white robes come from. But, but what it pictures is purity, standing in, as conquerors in the victory that the Lamb has won on Calvary. These are victors around the throne. And not just a white-robed multitude. They're a palm-waving multitude. Do you remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Crowds waving palms, laying them before him, saying, Hosanna. It's a picture of victory and triumph. The coming of a king. This multitude is recognizing whose presence that they're in. They're waving palms, but they're also a singing multitude. Do you see that in verse 10? And crying out with a loud voice. I mean, it's not just a soft whisper. It's, it's a crying out. And what are they saying? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do, do you realize this is the first time in the book of Revelation that we actually hear the church. We haven't heard the church yet in the book of Revelation. We've heard John. We've heard Jesus. We've even heard the one on the throne. We've heard from the 24 elders. We've learned from four living creatures. We've even learned from a number of different angels of different magnitudes. This is the first time we actually hear from the blood bought of the Lamb. And they're around the throne. And they're saying, salvation belongs to our God. Notice what they're not saying. They're not around the throne saying, Lord Jesus, where's my new Jerusalem mansion? Can I have the keys, please? That's not what they're saying. Jesus, where's my resurrection body? It's not what they're saying. They're saying, salvation belongs to our God. The first thing that the church utters in the book of Revelation is praise for being delivered from the wrath to come. 
the multitude, these victors, this church, this blood-bought is grateful in God's presence. They're singing. They're crying out as those who fully understand what the living God has delivered them from. And so if you have a little parched parcel of praiselessness in your heart, let the rain start to sprinkle on it. Let it come down. Here's what's coming down. Here's how you get your praise on. You call to mind what God has delivered you from. And you will find stirring in your heart a joy, a gratitude for your salvation. Thanksgiving is to praise as oxygen is to fire. In verses 11 and 12, the holy entourage around the throne, these angels, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they hear, see what is happening. And look what they do. Verse 11, verse 12, they fall down and they start with amen and they end with amen. Like, you, that's right. And in between the amens, sevenfold praise. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. It's just like Revelation 5.12. Sevenfold praise. The right, full response to who God is and what he's done. But there's a difference between this sevenfold list and the sevenfold list in verse chapter 5. And the difference is the word thanksgiving. And it's right in the middle of it all. How appropriate for those who, who are acknowledging the saving work of the triune God. Be to our God forever and ever. You want to get your praise on? What's going on in heaven? Every Sunday morning, my friends, every Sunday morning here, we sing to our God. Every Sunday morning is a little foretaste of what we'll be doing, at least in part, around the throne. Verses 9 through 12 is a picture of, of deep-rooted joy in the presence of God singing His praises, the church singing God's praises for delivering them. So the question is, can you see yourself among this multitude? Can you see yourself there? Can you see your children there? Can you see your neighbors there? Can you see your boss there? It starts to stir the embers of witness. It gives you courage. In verses 13 through 14, we have a bit of an explanation. One of the 24 elders in verse 13 comes to John and says, Who are these clothed in white robes? It's the second time that's used in this picture. And from where do they come? John replies in verse 13, Sir, you know, I know you're going to tell me. Just tell me what's up. And in verse, verse 14, the elder says, These, 
this multitude wearing white, singing God's praises. They're the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the faithful church. What the angels were holding back in chapter 7, verse 1, has come to pass by the time of chapter 7, verse 14. Here's my best take on the great tribulation. I'm in, I'm in process on it, but here's my best take on it. This great tribulation. Jesus refers to it in Matthew 24 as an intense season of great suffering, which will take soon before the great day of God's wrath. But I also understand the tribulation to be characteristic of the entire church age. From the first coming of Jesus to his second coming, the church being challenged and pressured to compromise their witness to Christ. It's what John refers to in chapter 1 verse 9 as being a partaker of the tribulation. So the great tribulation is this intensifying of pressure of all people that will lend unique temptations to the church to compromise. So what we see going on here is this multitude who's coming out of the great commission, great, great tribulation. Do you see that in verse These are the ones coming out of the great commission, it, great tribulation. It seems... What's being said here, implication is, the church will be going through the great tribulation. Present, witnessing, calling others to the Lamb. These are the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've come through the tribulation they're standing before the throne. It's, it's, it's a future picture. It's, it's a promise of what's to come for those who are faithful because, because they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. If it weren't for the blood of the Lamb, this multitude would not be standing around the throne. They would be hiding from the presence of the one on the throne. His blood, the blood of the Lamb, is our salvation now and forever. No one finds themselves around the throne in heaven without the blood of the Lamb. Do you see yourself among the multitude? Have you washed your robes and made them clean? made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If your answer is no, I have not, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day you get to call out to the risen Lamb, wash me with your blood, and He will. In verses 15 through 17, we see future reward. Just quickly, verse 15, at the end, you see he who sits on the throne will shelter them, those standing around, around him with his presence. It's in contrast 
to those who are hiding from the presence on that great and awful day. He is our shelter. You lacking some hope? Here's your hope. God's your shelter. We see in verse 17, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. That should ping something in your mind from, from Psalm 23. Make you lie down by still waters. It's, it's a picture of provision. Jesus, the lamb who's your shepherd, will provide what you need. You, you lack in hope. He's your hope. And then my favorite, very end, verse 17, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. We're going to see this repeated in Revelation 21. When the new Jerusalem finally comes down, God, God is with his people and he wipes away every tear. He will wipe away every tear for everything you cry over. Because in his presence there is fullness of joy. These are the ones standing on that day. Who can stand on that day? Only those who've been sealed by his name. And only those who've been washed by his blood. And they're one and the same. The church, the blood bought of Jesus. We've seen in this text two complementary pictures of, Christ, of the church in the midst of tribulation. You got an identity crisis? Who do you belong to? You need to be sealed by his name. You got a hope crisis? Look to the, look to the, the lamb who's also your shepherd. You've got a care crisis? You don't care about that great and awful day? Remember what you've been saved from. You've got a praise crisis. Remember what you've been saved from. You've got a witness crisis. Remember what you've been saved from. Only those who bear his name and been washed by his blood stand before his throne. God in heaven, Thank you for Revelation chapter 7. In Jesus' name, amen.